It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. And today, we're back in China. But this time, instead of talking about Milton Friedman and his weird relationship with the communist regime, we are going behind the money. So much of the story we hear about China today is an economic one. How, over the last few decades, it's risen from poverty and ruin to a global economic powerhouse. Or how China's modern leaders, from Deng Xiaoping to Xi Jinping, have steered the nation's course for good or ill. But there's a story beneath the surface of the artistic avant-garde that was born in China in the late 1970s and flourished during the 80s. The avant-garde which gave us Ai Weiwei's searing political commentary, Yui Minjin's contorted painted faces, and the shattered family portraits of Jin Shaogang. Their art didn't magically appear after Deng Xiaoping's political reset in the 1990s. And their art, whether implicitly or explicitly political, is in conversation with decades of Chinese artists working in the shadows of tyranny. From their re-education posts in the countryside, to the abandoned warehouses of Beijing, to the short-lived democracy wall of the 1980s. The story of where this avant-garde came from and how its hopes rose and fell in the years leading up to the Tiananmen Square Massacre, is at the heart of Madeleine O'Day's new book, The Phoenix Years. Madeleine is joining us from Sydney, Australia, to talk about art, resistance, and the making of modern China. Thanks so much for being on the show. And thanks for having me, Stephanie. So the book is drawn from your own experience, reporting for years on China, and um, not a few parties with the avant-garde themselves. <laughs> yeah. So can you paint a picture for us of what life was like in 1980s China when you first arrived? A really good way of thinking of the 1980s in China is to think about the 1960s in the West. Um, it's a period of extraordinary change, extraordinary excitement, um, a lot of idealism, um, and idealism that will finally come to a kind of tragic conclusion. There's a real parallel between the 60s in the West and the 80s in China. When I arrived there in 1986, we were right in the middle of a decade that 
that it started um, with the decision by the leadership of China under Deng Xiaoping to open uh, the economy to Western investment and to uh, Western expertise at the end of the 1970s. We were between that point and the point of 1989, which would be the Tiananmen Square massacre. We were halfway between those two points. But of course, in 1986, none of us knew that's what the end point of the decade was going to be. What we felt very much was a sense of excitement and a sense of a culture that was opening up um, and that it would just continue to open up. Um, when I went uh, to uh, to Beijing, I was there to cover the economic um, opening up um, and the business opportunities in China. I was working for the Financial Review newspaper and that was my day job um, and very interesting it was too. But at night, I very quickly fell into um, a kind of parallel universe um, and started investigating another story, which was, as you say, about the emerging avant-garde and the push for change and opening that was coming from below, not from the top. Um, I think we tend to see the story of China as very much something about uh, the government, the regime making certain decisions and, and the people just somehow respond to that. But in fact, a lot of the, the push for change was coming from below. So who were some of these avant-garde? Where did they come from? What was their story? How did they end up in... Beijing. Yeah, well, Beijing, of course, is a huge magnet in China, still is. It's a place where, where people want to be. There's a sense that that's, you know, that's where the power is, that's where the excitement is, that's where the culture is. It's the capital. Um, the kind of people that I met um, who were in the avant-garde in the uh, mid-'80s um, had all, to some extent, they had, they had two different um, backgrounds that were really important. There were the older ones, who were kind of in their late 20s, whose uh, most important experience um, had been the Cultural Revolution. So these were people who'd been sent away to the countryside as teenagers and out in the countryside, um, become totally disillusioned with the whole communist project when they saw the poverty um, that was out there. And they'd come back to the cities in the late 70s determined to see things change. So there was that generation. Um, and they were kind of the sort of, already by the time I was there, they were seen as the older generation, kind of inspiring, but somehow already kind of almost like passing it to history. Then there was a generation that I sort of hung around with and they were kind of my age. They were in their kind of like early 20s. And these were people who had benefited from the fact that in the late 1970s, after the Cultural Revolution, the, the government had made this incredibly important decision to reopen the universities, which had been closed during the Cultural Revolution, and not just reopen them, to make the um, examination for entry into university much, much more um, expansive. But also they went out of their way to, to send scouts out to remote parts of China to encourage people um, outside of the main centres to apply for university as well. And so a lot of the people I met in the mid-80s had come from, yeah, quite remote regions and and remote cultures even. Uh, people had come uh, from places like Xinjiang, which is the western part of China where uh, the Muslim sort of Turkic population is dominant, or they come from the south from, you know, really poverty-stricken areas like Guizhou, also a place where a lot of um, ethnic uh, minorities live. And uh, two of the big characters in my book, Guojian and Aniwar um, both represent those outskirts uh, populations who, who came to Beijing to make their careers as artists. Um, but it seemed like almost everybody that you met, however old, however young, was full of excitement about the possibility of what was happening in their country. Um, the opening up policy 
had been envisaged by the regime as allowing Western expertise and Western money in. But Deng Xiaoping famously said, you know, if you open a window, you have to assume that a few flies will get in as well. <laughs> and of course, the flies that came in were, you know, the Western experts who came in to help China. You know, they brought money, of course, um, investment, but they also brought their music and their books and, and just their ideas and their style of living, their clothing and, you know, sex and drugs and rock and roll. All of these things come in as well. So what kind of Western things were coming in and did everyone respond to them in the same kind of way? Yeah, the kind of things that came from the West, well, taking an artistic example, we tend to sort of think about, uh, when we think about, the, you know, art history in uh, in the West, we see it in a kind of a progression. You know, we think, oh, well, they were, they were impressionists and they were post-impressionists and then there were abstract expressionists. But of course, in China, um, up until the end of the Cultural Revolution, all Western study of Western art from the Impressionists onwards had been banned. People were allowed to study some Western models in terms of perspective and so on, the kind of classical Western things. But basically um, anything from Impressionism onwards was, was banned, literally banned. As soon as the open door policy began, all this kind of art, art books and art ideas started coming in and Westerners, of course, bringing knowledge about it. And the people in the university started to study it again too. The teachers could teach it again. But people got it in this fantastic mashup. So it, instead of thinking, oh, yes, there was Impressionism and there was Post-Impressionism, it's all there together. So people are kind of one day they're looking at something by Dali, the next day they're looking at something by Matisse, the next day it's kind of like, oh, it's Monet. So people are kind of mixing it all up in this kind of fantastic kaleidoscope. And you'd walk down the street and these books were coming in, pirated, pirated editions of all sorts of Western texts and being translated really quickly into Chinese. So you'd walk down the road and there'd be these carts with books on them. And one day you'd pick them up and, yeah, it would be Freud's, um, you know, interpretation of dreams. And then the next day there'd be a whole of other new books. And people were just buying them, picking them up and reading them and, and picking them up and reading a little bit and then putting them down and so on. I remember talking to Guo Zhen, who's a big character in my book, who'd come up from, from this remote part of China and he was incredibly excited by these ideas. But he said he could never finish one of these books because <laughs> you'd get a certain distance in and you think, oh, this is fantastic, but then there's this other one. And so they'd start reading these others. So it had this effect of certainly making people feel that anything could be questioned. You know, you think about what modernism did in the West. It, it really was about a great questioning of all of the kind of, you know, accepted ideas about who should rule and how they should rule and how we should behave. And they were getting all of this and they were thinking about how can this apply in our own lives. But at the same time, even by, by the end of my first year, um, 86, you could also see the frustration building because these people that I was dealing with were mostly students or young academics, young intellectuals, and they were on the one hand terribly excited by what was possible, but at the same time they were waking up to the fact that they had really no way of affecting government policy. They weren't really being heard. They could make a certain amount of noise, but who was hearing them? Who was listening to them? Right. It seemed like a peak of openness. Yeah, well, it was. And yeah. you, you talk about these peaks and troughs of freedom and openness, followed by crackdowns by the government. And of course, as you mentioned, the next huge crackdown was Tiananmen Square. So w what does something like that, what does a moment as momentous and as huge and with as many casualties as that, what does that do to to art in China? How does that affect the avant-garde? It's a terrible moment for the entirety of Chinese society and Chinese culture. You know, you have to remember that, that 
it wasn't just a few people involved, you know. There were demonstrations in all the major cities in China, even the most far-flung places. In Beijing, on one day of the, of the demonstrations in, in the spring of um, 89, leading up to the massacre, one million people rallied in the streets of Beijing on one day. And that wasn't just students, obviously. That was, you know, many, many ordinary people, uh, including a lot of people who were actually in the government. You know, there were people who... There were policemen who were part of the demonstrations. There were academics, intellectuals, journalists, taxi drivers. Um, it was famously said that at one point that even the pickpockets, you know, pickpocketers went on strike because they wanted to support the students and they took they took a few weeks off <laughs> just to go down to Tiananmen Square and, and demonstrate and support them. And it really did have that kind of party atmosphere um, about it. So imagine, you know, the catastrophic pain, the level of pain that happens when um, over a couple of days um, at the start of June, there is that terrible crackdown. The army, which people in China have been used to thinking of as their protectors, when they they moved into the city on the night of June 3rd, shooting as they came, shooting to kill as they came, um, and continue to shoot people over the next days, you have to think about just the the waves of, of mourning and despair that comes from that. The people who saw it unfold... Um, in the city, the streets of Beijing, um, and then that kind of rippling through society, the knowledge that something terrible had happened in the capital. So the effect, of course, on the young artists that we were just been talking about who were kind of excited and, and elated by all that was going on in the 1980s in Beijing, many of them were actually physically involved in the demonstrations. They'd been in the square. Guozhen, in fact, was a hunger striker in the square. On the night of June 3rd, he was in the square when the first news came that that they were firing. The, the army was coming in and firing in the suburbs. He rode out on his bicycle to actually witness it. Uh, but many other of the artists who went on in the 90s to become the really important, significant Chinese contemporary artists, they had been in the square. They'd seen it. They'd been students in Beijing at that time. Some of them had, had actually been involved in, in making that sculpture, the goddess of democracy that looked like a little like the uh, Statue of Liberty that they'd put up in the square in the final days of the demonstrations. So it was a time, moment of terrible despair and, and just disillusionment and a sense of broken idealism and that their lives had just been broken in two. And as they confronted the rest of their lives... Um, there had to be a big reset, and there was. There was a huge reset um, in people's hearts and, and what they felt was possible, and there was a reset at the, at the top of the government. Obviously, there was a purge of all the more uh, progressive voices and a re-establishment of, of pretty tough control. And then eventually a new kind of unspoken bargain emerged, and the bargain was that um, so long as the people left all the governing to the government the government would allow them and would encourage them and provide all the opportunities possible for the population to make money, to become as rich as they possibly could be. They would allow that and they would allow a certain amount of freedom in the private space, you know, within the four walls, you know, your private life. But at the same time, people would have to accept that there would be no great opening up of the political sphere. There would be no democracy even in the broader sense, there wouldn't be really any kind of negotiation with the people about the direction of China. So what did art look like after that political reset? Did It it must have changed in response. There was actually a really important um, exhibition that went to the West in the early 1990s and um, curated by a couple of um, Chinese curators, one from Hong Kong, one from Beijing, and they tried to, to choose art that would somehow send a message to the West about what was happening in the kind of soul of China. 
And they kind of defined in the early 1990s, they saw three main moods. The first was cynicism, you know, terrible cynicism. And that was expressed in some really wonderful art, kind of pop art. So you'd get these paintings which would have people just yawning, art about kind of delinquents and dropouts and so on. Then there was a kind of materialism. And a lot of the artists did work that kind of criticised that kind of materialism, seemed to celebrate it. For example, they would do paintings that would look just like um, Communist Party posters, the kind of posters that would normally have like a worker, a peasant and a soldier, you know, brandishing the little red book of Mao's quotations and a, and a scythe. And so they'd have these workers and peasants and soldiers, but in their hands they would put things like Coca-Cola cans and Mont Blanc pens and Canon cameras, you know, so just kind of subverting the whole materialism. And then there was another spirit, and this is the one that I guess created some of the most beautiful art that came out of China in the 1990s, um, and it's kind of a mood that you still see in a lot of art created by younger artists today as well. They called it wounded romantic spirit. But I prefer to think of it as a kind of nostalgia. It was painting that kind of expressed the fact that history in China, the cycles of history in China, were tragic and inescapable. And that as far as, as much as you tried to escape the pain and tragedy of Chinese history, it would somehow find you out. And what's interesting about young artists today, you know, people sometimes say, well, aren't all those sort of um, Tiananmen repercussions, do they really still matter today? Like do Chinese artists today still reflect on that? And what's interesting is that, is that they do. You often find that amongst young painters today, you know, people who, who were only just small children at the time of Tiananmen Square, they create a lot of work which is deeply nostalgic um, nostalgic for a time that they never even knew and it's because of that this sense they also feel that there was this big break in 89 and somehow they want to reflect it you know a couple of years ago there were some pretty brutal crackdowns on human rights lawyers on artists like Guojian, for instance sort of in the wake of the 25th anniversary of Tiananmen how do you think that how would you evaluate the state of of Chinese art today yeah well it's it has to be said you know when when you talk about as I do the, about peaks and troughs in China, we're definitely in one of the sort of deepest troughs that we've been in. Um, things are really grim in terms of the space for free expression in China. It's getting narrower and narrower and narrower, not just for creative artists, but for but for everybody, even uh, members of the Communist Party. What artists are doing is what they've always done, find a space. And so what's happening more and more is that they're creating the work they can create in China. They're trying to find more and more subtle ways of expressing their ideas, um, ways that will not be noticed as being subversive, even if they are. And artists who, some artists who really want to be much more explicit are having parallel careers. So they're creating work to be shown in the West, um, which is quite different to the work they're showing in China. But what they're doing is with the work that they that they do show in the West is um, they try and get that work onto the internet and they'll hope for it to get out there to the Chinese audience that they really, really want to get to. And artists like Shang-Chi and Guo Jian, who are basically effectively in exile now from China, um, every work they do, they put up um, on their Chinese social media accounts and they, they hope for them to get out to as many people as possible before they're inevitably censored from the internet. But as Shang-Chi said to me, you know, like there are, you can get millions of hits on a painting before the censors realise what it is and they, and they take it off the internet. And even today when the internet is much more closed and much more policed than it has been before, you still see all sorts of amazing free expression on the internet because in the end 
Chinese artists and Chinese people are just much more clever than the censors. They're much more, well, they're just more fleet-footed. They'll find a way. You ban one term, they find another way of saying it. You know, you ban one image, they find another image. Which is why I'm really optimistic about China, even as I get very sad sometimes about what's going on there. I see such dynamism in the society all the same, not just in the economy, but just in the way people express themselves, what you see on the street, what you see on the internet. And so for all that the regime tries to crack down and limit Chinese people's ability to dream, they can't in the end succeed. There are so many stories that I couldn't fit in this episode, like the stars, the very first members of the 1970s avant-garde, who bit their thumbs at the authorities with a guerrilla art exhibition outside of the National Museum that wouldn't exhibit their art. Or the wacky warehouse party come happening that could have come right out of Yoko Ona's subconscious. So for more stories like these, check out Madeleine O'Day's book, The Phoenix Years. That's it for Smarty Pants. Next week, we are back with another short episode about school privatization and segregation. And maybe if you guys like these short formats better, we'll stick with them. So let us know. Podcast at theamericanscholar.org. Till next time, take care and stay sharp. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.